My name is Adam. If we haven't met yet, it's uh, really great to have you with us this morning and to now just take a few moments to open up God's Word and to dive into that together. You know, there is uh, one of my favourite lines in any book that I've ever read. It comes from C.S. Lewis's well-known book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Now, I don't know if you've read this book, but there's a scene where... Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the the great ruler of Narnia, is a lion. Now Susan is surprised by this. She'd always assumed that Aslan was a man. And so she asks Mr. Beaver, well, is Aslan safe? To which Mr. Beaver responds and he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Now the reason that I love that line and and that scene so much is that I believe one of the chief errors that we've made in our day regarding God is we've tried to make him safe. We've domesticated him. We've trivialised him. We think that God is someone we can control. J.I. Packer, in his brilliant book, Knowing God, he says, we are modern people. And modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have, as a rule, small thoughts of God. Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. He has us in his hands, but we never have him in ours. Now if I was to put it bluntly, I would say we have imagined that God is someone who exists for us, rather than the biblical reality that we exist for him. Now you see this kind of thinking, or you see an example of this when you hear someone say, well, I just don't believe that God would do this, or say this, or demand this. But this is domesticating God by making him agree with us. Another example is what you hear in some Christian teaching today. There is some teaching that says, you have a great destiny and God is here to help you fulfil it. But again, this is domesticating God by making him subservient to our plans for our life rather than us being part of his plans. What about you? How do you domesticate God. Let me tell you one of the small ways that I do it in my life. Sometimes I read the Bible with you in mind. So I I read a passage of scripture and I think, wow, this would be a great sermon. The church really needs to hear this. When maybe, dummy, Adam really needs to hear this. And when I read the Bible in this way, I'm not taking God seriously and what he wants to do in my life. Now the title of the sermon today is The Weight of Glory. 
It could easily have been taking God seriously. You see, the word glory in the Bible comes from the same root word as weighty. The glory of God is his weight, his importance, his substance, his gravity. And we glorify God when we treat him as weighty, as substantial, as important. We glorify God when we take God seriously in our lives. And I believe that that all of us here today want to take God seriously in our lives. I don't think you got out of bed this morning, got in your car and drove down to church because you don't care about God, because you don't want to take God seriously. I believe that you do. And the truth is, we need more than a domesticated God. I don't know about you, but we don't need a God, I don't need a God who listens to what I have to say and does what I think should happen. That's happened a fair bit in my life. Things have gone the way I wanted them to and it wasn't always good. <laughs> Maybe it's happened for you as well. We need more than a God who does what we want or, or thinks what we think. We need a God of real love, real holiness, real glory, real weight. We need the God of the Bible. And this morning, in the story that we're going to be looking at, we're going to get a lesson in taking God seriously. We're in a sermon series at the moment, working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And if you were here last week, you might remember that Israel, the people of God, were at a point in their history when things weren't going so well. Their leadership was corrupt, their worship was compromised. And there were two priests in particular, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were dishonouring God and disobeying God at the temple in horrific ways. And Eli, their dad and their boss, failed to deal with them decisively. And so the priesthood and leadership of God's people is being taken away from Eli and taken away from his line. And they are being replaced by a little boy named Samuel, who God is raising up. Now, we landed last week with these words from the beginning of chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. So Samuel is being raised up, and we might expect now, as we catch up with the story this week and dive back into it in chapter 4, that we'll hear more about what Samuel did next. But interestingly, the story now takes an abrupt shift away from Samuel. He disappears from the story until chapter 7, and we're in chapter 4. Now the reason that the writer does this is because he wants to tell us first about the elimination of the old leadership in chapter 4, before returning to Samuel and the new leadership in chapter 7. And in between, in chapters 5 and chapter 6, God is going to teach his people, including us, a lesson about taking him seriously. God is going to reveal to us the weight of his glory. Now we actually gain three insights in this story about the character and nature of God. What we learn in this story, what we're going to explore today, is the God who cannot be manipulated, chapter 4. The God who cannot be defeated, chapters 5 and 6. And then the God who gives mercy in chapter 7. So let's begin with the God who cannot be manipulated in chapter 4. 
Now as chapter 4 begins, we see that the nation of Israel are going out into battle against the Philistines. Now the Philistines were the Israelites' neighbours. They came from Egypt and they settled on the coastal plain of Palestine. In fact, the word Palestine is a derivative of the word Philistine. Now you can see Philistia there is the region where they settled and this through in here is Israel. Now, this particular battle does not go well for the Israelites. They are defeated by the Philistines and they lose 4,000 men. And it leaves them with questions. They're wondering, why would we as the chosen people of God be defeated in this way? And why would we lose, especially to these pagan, idol-worshipping, no-good Philistines? How could God let this happen? And so they're thinking about this and what they might do and... This is their response in verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, that was where the temple was and where the Ark was kept, that he may come among us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now the Ark of the Covenant was a gold-covered portable chest or box. It was a bit over a metre long and a bit over half a metre wide. It contained copies of the Ten Commandments and it was kept, as I mentioned, in the temple behind a thick veil, a thick curtain in a place called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies because it represented the Ark, the presence of God among his people. Now some bright spark thought that it would be a good idea to go and get the Ark and to bring it onto the battlefield. Now on the surface, this might seem like a good idea, like they want the presence of God among them as they go into battle. But in reality, what they're doing is they're trying to manipulate God. They're trying to force God to act. If we have the ark among us, they think, then surely God will have to give us victory. And so what we see happen is that the ark arrives in the Israelite camp and it's being carried by none other than Hophni and Phinehas, which is not a good sign. But despite this, we read in verse 5, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. They think that by having the ark among them, God will have to give them victory. They're treating it like a good luck charm. They're not taking God seriously. They're not actually trusting in God. They're trying to manipulate God, use God to get what they want. The irony is that the Philistines, their pagan enemies, do take God seriously. You see, they hear the commotion, what's going on in the Israelites' camp, and they hear what's happened, that the ark has arrived, and they are afraid. Look at their response in verse 8. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. They'd heard about what God had done in Egypt with the plagues and they were afraid. But despite the enthusiasm of the Israelites and the fear of the Philistines, Israel lose badly. Those 30,000 men, we're told, the ark of God is captured and Hophni and Phinehas both die, fulfilling God's earlier judgment upon them that they would both die on the same day. This is a terrible defeat. But in this defeat, 
God is teaching his people and he's teaching us an important truth. And that is that he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. The Israelites lose this battle, not just because God was fulfilling his judgment upon Eli's line, but also because they were attempting to manipulate and control him. Now, lest we think, well, stupid Israelites, why would they do such a thing? Let's admit that we too often do the same thing. We too often relate to God in the same way. Sometimes we treat God a little bit like a waiter. Now, when you go to a restaurant, you sit with your friends and your family, you're enjoying a meal, you're talking together, most of the time you ignore the waiter. You only call him over when you need something or you want something. Can we have dessert now? Can we have a bit more water? Can we have the bill, please? The waiter does not sit at the table with you. He's not part of your evening. You just call him over when you need him. And we can treat God like that. He can, sometimes he's not part of our lives, often. And yet, when we need him, we'll call on him for his help. And it's very easy to fall into this kind of thinking and living. It might be as simple as thinking, well, I wear a cross on my necklace, so God will have to protect me. It might be as subtle as thinking, well, because I go to church and I read my Bible every now and then and, now and, then and I, I give some money, I'm holding up my end of the bargain, so God should hold up his end of the bargain. He should save me from hell, help me when I'm in trouble and give me a pain-free, happy, comfortable life. Let's admit, we do often relate to God in this way. But the God of the Bible is a God who cannot be manipulated and cannot be controlled. He doesn't operate on our timetable and he doesn't work according to our plans. And when we do relate to God in this way, when we think that there are certain things we need to do for God to make God do these certain things for us, we reveal that what we really think is that God is not ultimately good or trustworthy. We reveal that we think God needs to be manipulated. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of Christianity, is that God does not need to be manipulated. You don't need to twist God's arm to love you. You don't need to force God to act for your good, ultimately. God is good and does what is good for his children. And he's proved this to us by sending Jesus for us. The Bible says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Friends, God is not safe in that he cannot be controlled or manipulated by you. But God is good and he does what is ultimately good for his children. That's the first insight we can gain from this story. The second, the second thing that we learn about God is that he is a God who cannot be defeated. Now in chapters 5 and 6, the focus shifts from the conflict between Israel and Philistine to the conflict between the God of Israel and the gods of the Philistine, Philistines. 
see, after the ark of God is captured in the battle, it's taken to the Philistine city of Ashdod. You can see where Ashdod is, bottom left corner of the map down there. The battle was up around this area and it's taken all the way through down to the bottom of Philistia. Now, when it arrives there, it's placed in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon. And this is meant to be a sign of Dagon's superiority over the Lord. The conquered God is is almost bowing before this victorious God in his temple, on his home turf. But in the morning, something surprising has happened. The people of Ashdod come into the temple and they find that the statue of Dagon has fallen down. And it's face down before the ark of the Lord. And so the people pick up their God and they place him back where he was, which we're meant to chuckle at and laugh at as if you could pick up a God and put him in his place. Then the next morning they come into the temple and the same thing has happened again. But this time Dagon is decapitated. He's fallen and his head has come off and his arms have fallen off as well. As one scholar writes about this scene, Dagon is getting the deity knocked out of him. Now the point of this funny episode, and you know the Bible is meant to make us laugh at some some points, and this is one of them. The point of this funny episode is that God is a God who cannot be defeated. And he doesn't need anyone to help him. He doesn't need anyone to come and pick him up and put him in his place. He doesn't need his people to even defeat the Philistines. He can do it on his own. And in fact, this is exactly what happens. After Dagon is defeated and decapitated, God begins to make his presence felt among the people of Philistine. He afflicts the inhabitants with plagues of rats and sores on their bodies. And the ark, the people of Ashdod, get sick of this and so they pass it on to another city. And the same thing happens and it gets passed around to a few different Philistine cities until finally they have enough. They say, well, we don't want this ark anymore. You can have it back. And they send the ark back to Israel and they surrender to the God they thought they had conquered because he is a God who cannot be defeated and this teaches us a really important truth that we need to take hold of see the truth is if we look around us today it seems like God can be defied and can be defeated there are people who reject ridicule and defy God every single day, and nothing seems to happen. In fact, people who reject God even seem to be thriving in life. And it leaves us wondering, it leaves us with the question, well, maybe God can be defied. Maybe God ultimately can be defeated. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought that? This is not a new problem. In Psalm 73, there was a man named Asaph. And as he looked around at uh, the, the wicked who were thriving, those who hate God, who were thriving in life, he said, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. What he's saying, he's saying, well, maybe this life of honouring God, obeying God, following God, maybe it's pointless. Maybe it's not worth it. Again, have you ever been there? Asaph was at that point until he realised an important truth at the end of the psalm. 
says, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph is saying, even though it doesn't look like it right now, there is a day that is coming when God will end all defiance to his good rule. But right now, in this moment, this good God freely invites us to come to him and find refuge in him. And we can freely come to him and can freely find refuge in him because we have been fully forgiven by him through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, the cross was the ultimate defeat that was transformed into the ultimate victory. I mean, on the cross, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, the Son of God died in shame and weakness. It looked like God could be defied. It looked like God could be defeated. But then three days later, when Jesus emerged from the tomb, he defeated our greatest enemies. Our sin was paid for, Satan was disarmed, and death was defeated. They were lying decapitated at his feet. Because he is a God who cannot be defeated. And the defeated one became the victorious one. And what this means is that if you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you too cannot be defeated because you are united to a God who cannot be defeated. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It makes me think of a well-known story of a man named John Chrysostom. He was a leader in the early church in Turkey in the 4th century and this was a time when there was great hostility to Christians. And he was dragged before the empress and she threatened him with banishment if he kept preaching and teaching about Jesus. And he replied, he said, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, she said. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. If you are in Christ, you are united to a God who cannot be defeated which means you cannot be defeated. And the Philistines, they learned this truth the hard way. They were defeated by the undefeatable God. And so they send the ark back to Israel. They say, you can have it. And we might think that this is the end of the story, that the ark goes home and everybody lives happily ever after. But God has one more lesson in store. And this time it's not for the Philistines, but it is for his own people. What happens is the ark is sent on an ox cart to the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh. You can see Beth Shemesh there in the middle of the bottom of the map, just over the border. Now the people of this town receive the ark with great joy, but they also treat it with great disrespect. 
they see the ark and some of the people think, wow, the ark, I've always wanted to see this, let's have a look at what's inside. So they open the ark up and 70 of them die. God strikes them down. We read in verse 19, the people mourned because of the heavy blow, the heavy blow, the weight of glory that God had dealt them. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal? I mean, so they had a little bit of a peek inside. Surely it didn't require this response from God. Surely it doesn't matter that much. Well, here's the truth. It matters so much because they are treating God lightly. They are treating God as if they can approach him however they like. They're treating God as commonplace. But here's one thing that this episode teaches us, and that is that we cannot take God lightly. God is not safe. He's good, there's no doubt about it, but we cannot treat him however we choose. In fact, the word the Bible uses to describe God is holy. It means that he's different, set apart, totally separate from anything and anyone that he has made. And this is why after this terrifying incident, the people of Beth Shemesh ask this key question. They say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? This is the key question, not just in this story, but really in the entire Bible. Who can stand in the presence of this glorious, majestic, holy God? Now look at how the people of Beth Shemesh respond to this key question. Verse 21. They then sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, another Israelite town, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. They respond just like the Philistines did. We don't want it. You can have it. Now, it would be easy to shake our heads at the silly Israelites again, wouldn't it? But the truth is, we can often do the same thing. When we're convicted of our sin and God's holiness, sometimes our response is to just not think about the question. Sometimes we just make ourselves busy with work or entertainment or whatever else and we just don't think about the question. Sometimes we run away from God. We stop going to church, we stop reading our Bible, we avoid our Christian friends. We throw our hands in the air and think, well, there's no way I could stand before God. There's no way I'm good enough, so why even bother? Now, if that's how you feel or if that's how you've responded before or now, I want you to know that there is a better response. And we see this better response in chapter 7 when Samuel returns to the scene. Samuel shows us the proper response when we are convicted of our sin and God's holiness. Because Samuel shows us that though he is a God who cannot be manipulated, cannot be defeated, he is also a God who gives mercy. See, amazingly, after the ark arrived in the town of Kiriath-Jerim, it remained there for 20 years. 20 years it took before the people truly and properly began to turn back to God. Now, this is important because I think sometimes when we read the Bible, it seems like things happen so quickly. And we can be tempted to think, man, the people in the Bible, they really got it. They changed quickly. They grew quickly. But me... I'm struggling. I'm growing slowly and changing slowly. 
But it took 20 years before the people seriously began to turn back to God. And so now Samuel steps onto the scene and he's a a young man now. He was a little boy when we left him, now a young man. He calls all of Israel together and he calls them to repent and turn back to the Lord. Not just emotionally, he tells them to throw away their idols and their false gods, get rid of them and serve the Lord only. And verse 4 tells us that this is exactly what Israel do. They turn back to God. Now the word that the Bible uses to describe this action of turning back to God is repentance. It means to turn around, to turn from sin and turn to God. And this is what is happening in Israel. They're turning back to God. And this scene shows us what true repentance looks like. It's not just a change of attitude, it's also a change of action. It's not just a disdain for sin, it's also a desire for obedience. One commentator says, genuine repentance will always move beyond wet eyes and moved feelings and stirred emotions. It will cast down idols and cling to the only God. And the people of God here have reached this point of true repentance. And God shows mercy to his repentant people. God graciously acts on their behalf. See, he delivers them from the Philistines who attack them once again. And he does it not because they have successfully manipulated him, but because they genuinely trusted him. In verse 8 of chapter 7, we read of their attitude at this time. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. They're not trying to manipulate God, use God, control God. They are casting themselves upon the mercy of God in genuine faith and utter dependence. And God gives them mercy. See, the God of the Bible is not a God who is safe for us to control, manipulate, defy or defeat. But the Bible also tells us that he is deeply good because he is a God who gives mercy. And so if we get back to that key question that we asked just a few moments ago, who can stand in the presence of this holy God? The answer of the Bible, as it unfolds, is that we can stand in the presence of this holy God because Jesus Christ stood in our place upon the cross. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. If you are in Christ, you can stand before this holy God because you are standing in the grace that God freely gives through Jesus Christ. And the way that you take God seriously in your life is to believe this to be true and to live in light of it. To stand in this grace which God has placed you in and to live your life enjoying the mercy and grace of God and being used by God to share his mercy and grace with others. So let me just ask you, are you taking God seriously? Are you believing 
that because of Jesus Christ, you stand in the grace of God. Our God is not safe, but he is deeply good. And that's exactly what we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an amazing truth that we can stand in your presence. This holy God, this righteous God, because we stand in the grace which you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, help us to know this to be true and to live in light of it all the days of our lives. Help us to take you seriously in our lives. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, church. And in response, we sing this song which uses the word Ebenezer that we read in 1 Samuel 7. Ebenezer, which is a rock that Samuel places, remembering God's faithfulness and the cross is our Ebenezer. And that's what we sing of now, his love, his grace, his goodness.